Hello, and greetings from the Mirror Zone. I'm Bryce Skidmore. And I'm David Leskin. And we're here to talk to you about some science fiction tonight. It's a really great story. Uh, we're going to be covering our first Harlan Ellison. The Paladin of the Lost Hour. Uh, it was not a lost hour for me, reading it. I, I don't feel like I lost that hour. It was brilliant. I would agree with that. I feel like I've gained several lifetimes and uh, one final nuclear-free hour as well. <laughs> Thank goodness. Yeah. All praise Pope Gregory. All praise Pope Gregory. <laughs> and Julius Caesar, kind of, I guess. Yes. May they both forever keep us in time. <laughs> so, um, shall we start with a plot synopsis? Sure. Cool. Yeah. Uh, do you want to go? Yeah, please. Um, our story starts out uh, at a graveyard, and we see two people visiting the graves of people that meant something to them. We see an old man named Gaspar, and we see Billy a man visiting a grave as well. And along with the two of them, we also introduce the story with two criminals who proceed to attack Gaspar the old man and try and take his wallet. A couple of young punks. Yeah, they are definitely up to no good. Mm. He's got this uh, really nice little pocket watch. Um, and as soon as they nab it, uh, the watch like leaves the, the mugger's hands and floats back to Gaspar, uh, the old man. So uh, yeah, there's a there's a little bit of um, like magic stuff going on right now. Yeah, it's definitely in the realms of science scientific fiction, mm. if you will. Exactly. Um, was it? He gets helped out though, yeah. Yeah, Billy, the other person visiting the grave, a younger man, comes to the aid of Gaspar. He fends off the two muggers and helps Gaspar to his feet. And the two seem to hit it off pretty well. Mm. Uh, Billy wants to go back about his life and continue being by himself. And Gaspar suggests that the two of them go and have some tea. And as they get to know each other over tea, they realize that they have a friendship growing between the two of them. Exactly, yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, Billy takes him back to his apartment, which is like... Like, these two already have, like, such a very strange social connection where it's like, I mean, how often do you, like, just meet someone in a graveyard and then invite them to hang out back at your house? Yeah, and much less feel the comfort to be able to have very intimate mm. conversation, which is what the two mm. of them end up doing, talking about, you know, who they were visiting at the graveyard and uh, what their lives mean. And Gaspar even brings up that there's an interesting story behind his own name. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I love that. Where he's just like... Uh, my name's Gaspar. You know what that means? No? Great. Now we have something to talk about. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, they have this really great relationship together. And what it leads to is, even though uh, Billy has to go to his job, he allows Gaspar to sit a spell and, uh, you know, relax himself. He can tell that Gaspar doesn't really have anywhere to go back to and that he's very old and he wants to help him out. And... There's really nothing of his that he cares about stealing, and mm. he doesn't. He trusts the man. He doesn't think Gaspar's going to take anything from him. Mm. And in that way, uh, Gaspar ends up staying the night. Mm. And when Billy comes back from his shift, Gaspar's already made him a meal—a beautiful dinner with fucking cupcakes. That's right. He made handmade cupcakes. For handmade him. cupcakes. I, yeah, the best roommate ever. <laughs> right, and and that's exactly what Billy's thinking. He offers to let. Uh, you know, after being questioned whether it would be okay and noticing that Gaspar doesn't seem to have a home to go back to, he offers to let him be his roommate. 
And Gaspar appreciates that, but tells him he doesn't think it's going to be for that long because he's been told that he's at the end of his life. Yeah, he's dying. That's right. So we get to see these uh, nice characters interact uh, in a few like lovely scenarios. There's this one bit that I loved where like uh, Gaspar comes back to the apartment uh, with toys. Or no, it was Billy. Billy comes back to the apartment with like a bunch of toys, like Transformers. And Gaspar is like intuitively knows how to like make them change from yeah it was Transformers, GoBots, and 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 a couple other transformable toys, and the two of them have this sort of uh, cute kind of childlike moment where they both connect, uh, regardless of their ages and and their backgrounds, mm. just through playing and having fun. Yeah, going to see movies. I uh, there was this one bit that I really enjoyed where I uh, as they're. They're going. They're on their way to a movie, and Gaspar is just bitching the whole time. He's like, "I don't like these modern actors. Like, you know, I no Meryl Streep movies." He calls out Meryl Streep. He's like, "They cry too much, and their noses get red." <laughs> I know he has a lot of uh, opinions, and he lives his life the way he wants to. No, he's like he's a very crotchety old man, but it's like charming. <laughs> it is charming. It's delightful. And he's so crotchety, in fact, that as they're on their way to the movie, like some dude throws a cigar butt out the window. And Gaspar picks it up and, like, throws it back into the guy's caddy. <laughs> he and starts freaking out. There's a really great scene in the short story uh, it, where you're talking about mm. where after he's thrown the butt into the back seat, the man is so outraged, he doesn't even know what to do. There's people honking at him. He can smell <laughs> the smoke coming up from his back seat. He's seat belted in so he can't quite turn around mm-hmm. all the way and it's just this really great scene where he's being inundated by, on, on all sides he's got the death of fire and his beloved mm-hmm. car he's got angry people honking behind him and he's got and this a, crotchety great, old guy and screaming and old at guy. him yeah it, it's it's hilarious but yeah so they uh yeah you know he's just he's a, a peculiar old dude uh who um believes that he's responsible for the world that's, and, that's right and you know he seems kind of crazy uh, at the onside. Yeah, and Billy even asks him, why do you do that? Do you think you're responsible for every time somebody throws a butt on the sidewalk? And Gaspar goes to explain, yeah, he's responsible for every single thing in the entire world. Mm. It does sound insane. He's what, what were some of the things he said he was responsible for? Oh, let's do that. Let's do quotes, because I definitely want to read out that whole... Like, yeah, because it's just, it is just a perfect, like, a perfect monologue of crazy and, like, and just truth. <laughs> yeah, there's so much truth. This guy is woke as a, woke AF. Woke as fuck, you guys. Yeah, he's pretty woke. So uh, yeah, um, the the time passes. They get to know each other a little better. You get to find out some things about uh, who they were visiting in the cemetery. Like they they say straight up, like when they meet, like I was here visiting this person. But they have to know each other long enough to actually get the full story. And you know. Gaspar talks about his wife, Minna, who he was utterly in love with. They were wonderful companions. And uh, Billy um, eventually tells him about the man who sacrificed himself in Vietnam so that he could live. That's another really great quote we need to go into as well. No, and that's like, and that's why like right now, like we're just bare bones in this right now (laughs) for plot reasons, because we're going to tell you what they say. One day, um, Billy goes to pick up the watch while Gaspar is asleep. And the watch won't stay in his hand. In fact, levitates and floats back to Gaspar. And Billy's, like, very, like, freaked out by that. And he's like, I'm obviously dreaming. I'm going back to sleep. And Gaspar says, well, 
I want you to come with me to the cemetery tomorrow. Um, I think I'm dying, and I want you to be there. So they go back to the cemetery, and Gaspar lays some shit on Billy. He lays the cosmic shit Mm -hmm. on Billy. He tells him that he's... His watch is stopped at 11, and basically that watch will never move forward as long as somebody guards the watch and makes sure that that final hour never hits. And in that way, he's he's the protector of the earth. He's mm-hmm. making sure that the end never comes. Mm-hmm. And he tells him this with the full weight of being in a cemetery and knowing that this is the end of his life. Exactly. It's it's such a moving scene. Like, we talked about this where it's like, it made me cry. Like, it was just so real. Like. But Billy, like, he doesn't want the responsibility, and Gaspar has to pass it on. Um, eventually, Billy concedes that he will take on the responsibility and become the paladin of the lost hour. But Gaspar uh, decides to use one minute of that hour so that he could talk to the, the man who sacrificed himself in Vietnam so he could live. And Billy's been racked with guilt for his entire life about it. Like, he never got to thank this guy who yeah. changed his entire life and saved him. Mm-hmm. And he, he even says, like, why? Like, why would he pick me? He didn't know me. Like, that guy could be alive right now and I would be dead. And he seems a, like he seems like the, that's what he wants because he feels guilt for surviving. But, like, just talking to the guy, like, you know, it made Billy feel better. And, and Gaspar passes um, at the grave of his beloved wife. And uh, the paladin of the lost hour uh, is now Billy. That's right. And, and because of his friendship with Gaspar... And, and getting to know this man and understanding the responsibility and, and coming to terms with his own place in it, he's able to take that mantle on and hopefully continue to make sure that the world never ends. Exactly. I really enjoyed it, and uh, I enjoyed the, the short story that we read, and I really enjoyed the uh, Twilight Zone episode that they based mm-hmm. off of it as well. Exactly. Folks, if you're not aware of this, um, in 1987... Uh, this episode was, uh, there was an episode of the Twilight Zone, um, that was based off of the story that Harlan Ellison also wrote. Uh, the script won the Writers Guild Award of, yes. uh, the Writers Guild of America Award in 1987 for best, like, best one-off episode type deal. So, like, you know, that's the award you give for just, that was a sick episode. Like, I think Mad Men, like, the suitcase, uh, episode won that award also. So in terms of, like, the annals of television history, like, this is kind of a really good honor in television. It's especially important given that if you've ever watched any other Twilight Zone episodes, it has all of the characterization and feel of previous Twilight Zone episodes, but I would say it's it's definitely science fiction light, which we mm-hmm. kind of talked about a little yeah. bit. Uh, it's, the science fiction is almost incidental to the characters mm-hmm. in the story. No, and it's like we don't... I mean, because obviously it's like... It seems magical, but there's like... There is a, a device, like it's a watch. So it could be sci- a scientific contraption. Or like... And we talk about sort of adaptation of calendars, which is like also like scientific more than ma- magical. But like, yeah, man, it's like... It doesn't really... The mechanics of the watch and the hour are never really fully explored. No. It's, it's basically the same sort of understanding of time that we have of, oh, well, don't worry about losing an hour. You're going to gain an hour later. And we mm-hmm. all just sort of take that in stride and don't really think about the, the implications of what that means metaphorically. Mm-hmm. And this kind of explores it without needing to be too beholden to the science behind what would cause that. Yeah. No, it's, man, it's such a good story. And the episode was really good. Uh, I really liked... Um, 
both of the actors I thought did an amazing job. They really did. Uh, was it both of the actors did a great job? Uh, Danny Kay played Gaspar. He was like in Secret Life of Walter Mitty. He's like a, a film actor. And um, the other uh, actor, uh, Glenn Truman, played Billy. And he had like that scene where he was just having like his Vietnam flashback. Chilling. It was such a good scene. I, I loved being able to have this in both television and short story format because it gave me a really solid understanding of that Vietnam scene. Whereas in the book, I'm picturing all of, you know, the, the gunshots and, mm-hmm. you know, the, the terror and the lights. In the show, they end up using sound and lightning that's going on behind the two characters as the story is told to really illustrate it. And it's really good comparisons of what your mind's eye will pull up when you're reading the story versus the stories that they that they show in the Twilight Zone. Mm-hmm. The Twilight Zone's usually just good television. Yeah. <laughs> Hard pressed to put Harlan Ellison and Twilight Zone in the same room and not get something amazing. Well, no, and it's and here's the thing, like I I I understand what you say, uh, and I appreciate it, but there are just certain things that you can't do with images that you can do with text. And one of the things is probably one of the most interesting social aspects of this short story is that we have a one-line clarification at the beginning and then one at the end, but it is merely the statement that one of these men is white and one of these men is black, and the story will not tell you which. Oh, I love that aspect of it. It's, you know, obviously for for the TV show, they had to make it explicit. Exactly, because you have to have human bodies out there acting it out. Like Right, but, but in your mind... It almost gives you the choice. They leave that information there dangling, and then it's never brought up again. So, mm-hmm. you know, however you pictured in your mind is really how it happened. To you, at least. Yeah. No, that's like, I, I love that convention where it's like, you read about a character so much, and then someone will, like, just drop a thing about them. And it's like, oh, didn't you know? What does it matter? If, if you got through the story this long without knowing this person's ethnicity, maybe... That's not a good basis for judging people. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and it brings to mind a lot of what goes on when we have these castings in, I mean, I guess comic book and science fiction movie adaptations would be the best example of this, where you have a character people have always pictured as being a certain color in their head, mm-hmm. like uh, Dark Tower being uh, yeah. with, with Idris Elba. Yeah. Um, yeah, Roland was, yeah, like Roland was a black man in the movie, which, like, Great casting. <laughs> it's amazing casting, and, and I would say the same goes for uh, the Kingpin in the Daredevil movie. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Michael Clark Duncan, uh, the only good part of that movie. <laughs> he, but but he manages to make his performance be a 10 out of 10 movie review for just his part in it. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, it does really illustrate uh, both the constraints and the benefits of, of having to actually clarify this person is one race or another. Mm-hmm. So, um, do you want to jump into quotes? Let's do it. All right. All right, I'm, I'm just going to drop this line real quick. It's the first line of the story, um, but I think it's interesting for a few reasons. Um, this was an old man. Not an incredibly old man. Obsolete. Spavined. Not worn as the sway-backed stone steps ascending the pyramid of, the pyramid of the sun into an ancient temple. Not yet a relic. Which, like, I kind of like that to start out because it's... I feel like it's very infrequently that we get a protagonist who's older. Yeah, it's more on the line of the idea of, like, the Ronin or, Mm -hmm. you know, some sort of wandering, last-of-his-kind kind kind of, like, you know, 
uh, we already brought this up, but Dark Tower's character, mm-hmm. the idea of being like the last of Camelot or something like that, this decrepit old guy he would never suspect to be powerful or, you know, uh, capable of something like world responsibility. Mm-hmm. No, and this is, uh, no, exactly. And this is another thing about this, um, about actually, this is just about Harlan Ellison that I like. I love science fiction. I am very rarely in danger of being sent to a dictionary when I read it. <laughs> yeah. and Unlike it, it, this fucking story, which I had to look up three or four words. <laughs> um, been. Mm. Uh, Spivend, and then there was one that was, um, you know, was it, uh, the old man stopped, stared down at the, uh, caporalitic metaphor. Caporalitic is fossilized shit. Amazing. What the fuck, man? Thank you so much for, like, knowing what that word meant, and now I have it. Like, <laughs> yeah, Harlan Ellison is basically saying that this guy dropped a deuce on the sidewalk. Yep. <laughs> in the most beautiful prose possible. Yep. So it, that was such a good like like yeah no he's I love the he writes very well like and that's not something I very like I I'm, don't get me wrong I don't think that like for a book to be good it has to be like not like Flaubert wrote where it's like he would like just agonize over a paragraph until it was perfect like or Truman Capote who would write multiple versions of the same sentence but like you know because most of the time science fiction like you need to get paid so. You write a draft, you send it in. I think the Heinlein we we read was a it was a good story. It was straightforward too. Like you know, it didn't send me to a dictionary, which I don't think that that's a, a bad thing. Like I like to be able to sit down and read a thing. He also read it all in one day. Like, and it shows. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's it, it is very uh, straightforward, and you're able to barrel through it without having to you know make these stops, which you sometimes do in this story, for to kind of ponder what the meaning of some of the words were. But at the same time, I think it's also a great way to characterize, even though some of it is the omniscient narrator of of Ellison telling the story, some of it also is representative of this old man who comes from a bygone time and is protecting Mm. a bygone spirit or or a bygone secret. Mm. And so his language and description of himself would reflect this sort of, this earlier time. Mm -hmm. All right, now, I'm going to read, we talked about it earlier, but I'll just read the line where, like, he says it. Um, this is when they're in the cemetery, um, and, uh, Gaspar is being assaulted, um, or no, before Gaspar is assaulted. So they're in the cemetery, uh, just Gaspar and Billy, they're staring at the respective graves of the people they went to see. We get our description of Billy. Unlike the old man, Billy Canetta neither cried nor spoke to memories of someone who had once listened. He might have been a geomancer, so silently did he stand, eyes towards the ground. One of these men was black, the other was white. It's it's beautiful because you're almost the two thoughts are almost separate. You know what I mean? It's you're just you're dropping a line of information for the reader, but the actual description of the character, you're you're pretty clear about who's who up until they make that broad statement. Exactly. And, and it's so it's almost unimportant. It's almost incidental that he's mm-hmm. telling us this. Yeah. It's like, oh, by the way. And then not going to bring it up again until the end, and not in any context that's going to resolve what some people might want to know. Like, this is so. This is right after, um, right after the the punks attack him, I believe. Son of a bitch! He was speaking in general of the fence, the sliding under, the muddy ground, the universe in total. <laughs> I know. It is really great. It's just, he's he's throwing a son of a bitch at everything in his path. Yep. 
No, it's like, <laughs> what's your... It's like, hey, buddy, what's your problem? How much fucking time you got? <laughs> <laughs> the yeah. universe... The fence, the mud, the universe in total. <laughs> Pretty much everything is giving him shit. No, and it's... I, I love that. Like, that's another thing. It's like, I, I feel like it's difficult for some uh, science fiction writers to write very clearly delineated characters, but this is like... I get Gaspar, like, right away. It's just this crotchety old man who's, like, also pleasant. Gaspar has fully realized his both his rage and his kindness. So, uh, yeah, after... Um, and this is, like, after Billy helps him fight off the uh, um, the muggers. Uh, Billy shook his head with amusement, smiling despite himself. You're something else, Dad. I don't even know you. I like that. What? That I don't know you? No, that you called me Dad and not Pop. I hate Pop. Always makes me think the wise apple wants to snap off the snap off my cap with a bottle opener. Now Dad has a ring of respect to it. I like that right down to the ground. Yes, I believe we should find some place warm and quiet and sit down and get to know each other. After all, you saved my life. No, uh, it was it. There's another sentence. It's the uh, it's the sentence that ends the bit when they're in the cemetery. But it's a very interesting sentence. Through all of this, the timepiece made no sound, no sound at all. So the flying watch doesn't work. Yeah. Or. Or what it does is not necessarily what a watch would do. Exactly. So was it from there we go to Billy Canetta's apartment so that we can have tea? His three-room apartment was the vacuum in which he existed. It was furnished, but if one stepped out into the hallway and for all the money and all the numbered accounts in all the banks in Switzerland, one was asked to describe those furnishings, one would come away no richer than before. The apartment was charisma poor. It was a place to come when all other possibilities had been expended. Nothing green, nothing alive existed in those boxes. No eyes looked back from the walls. Neither warmth nor chill marked those spaces. It was a place to wait. Which, first of all, ouch. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. I mean, you know, we're being a little hard on Billy, I think. Yeah. No, and it's, I, I think that's rather interesting, too, because it's like, um, I'm sure a lot of people listening have, like lived in a squalor bachelor pad at some point yes like there is that part of it but what's really interesting also him being a vietnam veteran mm -hmm. is you it's never really discussed but kind of the there's a little bit historical context to this in that uh billy comes back from this war and he's working as a 7-eleven uh, as the, yeah, as the night clerk at seven, or the night manager at Seven Eleven, and and he feels just as in, insignificant as he's treated by the world, and I think that both as a waiting room for Gaspar in the sense that this story is his waiting room, he's waiting mm. to die, and mm. on the other sense, it's it's sort of the same thing for for Bill. Yeah, he's because he moved to this town in order to be near this grave of this person who affected his life so greatly, and to pay back that debt. He, too, is treating this place like a waiting room. They just both have different amounts of time for how long they're going to be in that room. Yeah. It kind of reminds me, weirdly, of, like, um, Tony Kirchner's Angel in, Angels in America, where there's, like, that scene where um, the wife, Harper, goes to, like, her special place, which is, like, the North Pole, and it's like, you don't have to feel anything here. You don't have to feel sad. You and that's why it's cold. Or, like, that's why it's at the North Pole, because, like, everything's frozen. And it's, like, it sort of, like, freezes you in stasis. Like, so that you don't have to really move on. And I feel like that's kind of what this apartment is for Billy in some ways. And also being in this town. But the person who sacrificed his life for him is buried there. And he goes to that grave every time he can. 
Yeah, I mean, you really think it shows about what Billy considers most important. You know what I mean? He he's living in this in this place. It's just a place for him to exist rather than maybe live. Mm. But he's putting all of his important living time into being near this dead person. Mm. And was it considering the function of the watch in what we can usually think of in terms of what might what might come into a story with regards to the function of time within a story. So like, you know, if time is like something that can be fucked with, like it is in this story, um, certain words tend to pop out at me when I'm reading fiction that's related to time. Uh, but I love that it was a place to come when all other possibilities had been expended. Oh, what a great, like, what great terminology when you're talking about time. Yeah. And it's like, uh, yeah, it's such a great, it's great terminology to talk about time. And it's like, we've run, <laughs> we've run every other permutation. This is just where we end up. And, and there's, there is a sense in a lot of other parts of the story going onwards from this quote where it, it, time is sort of compressed. It's hard to tell how much time goes on mm-hmm. between the two staple events we see happen, which is yeah. both being at the graveyard beginning and end. Exactly. Yeah, the, the tele- that's another problem with like the book or the story versus the television episode. And it's not really a problem. The, the episode of The Twilight Zone, it makes it seem like they just were roommates for like a week. They very well could have been. Also, there's absolutely nothing in the story to to suggest that it was as short as a week or like longer than three days. Yeah, it's it's really hard to tell how much time is passing, and and I think that that's partially due to what that quote is is doing and what it's doing. A, a lot of the rest of the story is we lose our sense of time. What's more important is what happens, not how long it takes for that to happen. Mm-hmm. In that in that purgatory. We're right after Billy and uh, Gaspar are making tea. Yeah, uh, like they'd asked me. So it's like um, they're having tea, and uh, Gaspar is looking at all of Billy's books, and he talks about how much he loves books. That's right. Apparently Gaspar himself had his own library of books, as as I'll go into now. They'd asked me, have you read all these books? He waited again, but Billy Canetta was not playing the game. Well, young fella, after a while, the same dumb question gets asked a million times. You get sort of snappish about it. And it came to annoy me more than a little bit, till I finally figured out the right answer. And you know what the answer was? Go ahead, take a guess. Billy appeared in the kitchenette doorway. I suppose you told them that you'd read a lot of them, but not all of them. Gaspar waved the guess away with a flapping (laughs) hand. Now what good would that have done? They wouldn't know they'd asked a dumb question, but I didn't want to insult them either. So when they'd asked if I'd read all those books, I'd say, hell no. Who wants a library full of books you've already read? <laughs> I know, and I love that. It really says a lot about Gaspar, mm-hmm. and it gives us a better understanding of his sense of humor and, and you know, how he sees mm-hmm. life. Man, it's like, I love that too, because it's like, I, I've gotten that question, my room is just wall-to-wall books, like... And most every apartment I've lived in has been that way too. But like, like I never understood that question because I have books and I read. So it's like, like yeah, who the fuck wants a library full of books you've already read? Like I'll keep books after I've read them, but like most of the stuff is sitting around because I want to read it. Yeah, exactly. I, you know, the, and people, it doesn't have to just be books. I'm sure many people know the same situation of libraries of music, mm-hmm. libraries of video games, libraries of comic books, libraries of of art books. It's, it's always that same sort of question, and, and he does have a really great follow-up. It's not going to make them feel stupid, necessarily, or it's not going to make him seem like he's an asshole for making them feel stupid. Mm-hmm. But it's definitely one I can relate to. Yeah. 
was it uh, after uh, they have tea together? Billy like is going to go to work because he has to work late. So he's going off for his night job and uh, leaves Gaspar in the apartment. And he's just like, "Oh no, I I, I trust you not to steal anything. Like just close the door on your way out and it'll lock by itself." When Billy comes home, Gaspar has made him like a huge meal with cupcakes and it's fucking amazing. And this is the this is the quote that you actually brought to my attention. Um, when he came home at two, prepared to open a can of Hormel chili, he found the table set for dinner, with the, the scent of elegance with the scent of elegance of beef stew enriching the apartment. There were new, there were new potatoes and stir fried carrots and zucchini that had been lightly battered to delicate crispness, and cupcakes, white cake with chocolate frosting from a bakery, and in that way, as gently as that, Gaspar insinuated himself into Billy Canetta's apartment and his life. I it's really great because. I mean, by itself, it's really great, but it's also a payoff to this idea that in the beginning of them going, getting to know each other, he's sort of asking Billy these things, you know, one, a one-sided conversation that Billy is mm-hmm. not necessarily taking place in. Mm-hmm. And once they've gotten to know each other a little bit, this, this act of personal touch, of love, of, of giving him everything, including the cupcakes with frosting on top... Mm-hmm. How could you not let someone insinuate themselves into yeah. your life if you came home to have a sad thing of chili? Yeah. No, and it's like, as someone who cooks for a living, and it's like, that's one of the reasons why I do it, is because, like, there really is nothing that feels better than, like, making a good meal for someone. And it's a bonding experience when you can sit down and eat with them. But, like, that is the most wonderful, gentle way. Like, a gentle way, it was as gentle as that. Like, he just, he made me dinner. Like, when I thought, like, all I had was a can of Hormel chili. And... Yeah, that's that is true friendship to me in a lot of ways. Like I was in this very weird Christian way, I was hungry and you fed me. That's beautiful. Yeah. It's a great metaphor for that. And and you know, I think that it it really humanizes both of them that obviously you or I would probably not go to a cemetery, save somebody and then they would end up moving in with you. Yeah. But if someone did this, how could they not instantly be your best friend in the whole world? Seriously. Like, those, those cupcakes alone would have pretty much I would be like okay here's the key as soon as I read white cupcakes with chocolate frosting I'm like bitch get in my house <laughs> why do I have to ask you and <laughs> and you know it's all part of Gaspar asking to live there you know what mm. I mean he he does all this but he's so soft spoken mm. and kind about his it's very obvious that he's you know homeless yeah. and that he's a little under the weather and, and, and hard on his luck mm. and he could have very easily said, I'm very poor, please take me in. But this gesture, this huge gesture, it's more than that. Yeah. No, it's, it's such a lovely scene. Um, yeah, no. And they're, from there, they're, their friendship blossoms. Uh, they hang out, they play with toys. There's that wonderful uh, scene that we talked about where he throws a, the guy's cigar butt back into his own car to burn his Corinthian leather. So, once again, I'm triggered by, like, uh, certain language in time stories, and this is one of the things that uh, sort of triggered my, like, sense, because, you know, it has to do with causality. Uh, but after um, after Gaspar throws the cigar into the, the asshole's caddy, the guy freaks out. He goes, you fucking bastard. What do you think you're doing to my car, you asshole bastard? I'll kill you. Billy's hair stood on end as he saw what Gaspar was doing. He was rushed back to the short. He rushed back the short distance in the sidewalk to grab the old man. Gaspar would not be dragged away. Stood smiling with an unconcealed pleasure at the mad bull raging and screaming and his, at, 
of the hysterical driver. Billy yanked as hard as he could, but Gaspar and Gaspar began to move away around the front of the Cadillac toward the far curb. Still grinning with octogenaric charm, the light changed. These three things happened in the space of five seconds, abetted by the impatient honking of the cars behind the Borum as the light turned green, screaming, dragging, honking, as the driver found he could not do three things at once. He could not go after Gaspar while the traffic was while the traffic was clanging at him, could not let go of the car door to crawl into the back seat, from which now came the stench of churning leather, of charring leather, that could not be rectified by an expensive Tijuana truck and tuck and roll, could not have could not save his back seat and the same could not save his back seat at the same time stave off the hostility of a dozen drivers cursing and honking. He trembled there, torn three ways, doing nothing. And all of that in five seconds. Yeah. I love that. And you can instantly picture Gaspar as being somebody who, sure, you'd, you'd feel embarrassed and want to stop them from doing these things. But, but also kind of like, fucking go, dude. <laughs> you would also be kind of smiling and egging them on a little bit. You're like, yeah, yeah you know, you're doing the thing that we all wish we could do. Mm-hmm. And it's like, and it's amazing, too. And it's like, I bring it up in terms of, like, time because it's like, that's something that I do find rather interesting is uh, perception of time changes based upon perspective and position like depending on your point of observation for a series of events you might put them in a different chronological order and what i thought was interesting about like and so i think about shit like that but like i love in this situation where the guy there's some asshole like who cares more about his car and like is just making our streets dirty gaspar puts him in his place but in the perfect scenario where the man can't do anything like all right, I can get out and kick his ass, but all these drivers behind me, I can't fucking get the cigar because the light's green, and it's like, yeah, it's just this perfect storm, and he just shuts down like he could do nothing. <laughs> it, yeah, it, it's really great, and it shows you, despite all of what we've been told about Gaspar being old and kind of bedraggled and, and sort of having the weight of the world on him, he's also feisty, and he speaks mm-hmm. his mind, and he doesn't let wrongs go unrighted. No, he's, uh, in a weird way, like a true paladin. Paladin's the perfect word for what he is. No, it's like, it's this questionless good, like, it's an unquestioning goodness, almost. Yeah. Even even though it's crotchety. (laughs) Even though it's crotchety, and even though, like you said, a lot of this is really dependent upon whose point of view you're taking, it's really great to be able to read this short story before you see the Twilight Zone episode, Mm -hmm. I'd say, because the Twilight Zone episode doesn't really have an opportunity to compress time in the same way as as the story does by being able to see it from all of their points of view. Yeah, and it's uh, and it's that's the thing. Like I will like I will wholeheartedly recommend watching that episode, but like there there are things that you get from like the text. There is an effect of the text that is worth reading. Like it's not like some stuff where it's like it'd be like, oh you're good if you just watch the movie. Like this is one of those things where it's like, eh, look at the story too. <laughs> yeah, and especially with this quote in in that scene in the television show, it definitely happens almost faster than five seconds. Whereas in this, in, in reading it, I felt like it could have taken place over a half hour for all the things you see that happen. Mm-hmm. Is it uh, so? Uh, after Billy pulls Gaspar away, we have just the best like monologue, and it's actually this scene in the television show is amazing. But we're gonna read it for you too. How about that? The old man said, giving Billy an affectionate poke in the bicep. Nuts! Looney! That guy would have torn off your head! What the hell is wrong with you, old man? Are you out of your boots? I'm not crazy. I'm responsible. 
Responsible? Responsible, for Christ's sakes? For what? For all the butts every yacht throws in the streets? The old man nodded. For butts, and trash, and pollution, and toxic waste dumping in the dead of the night? For bushes, and cactus, and the baobab tree? For pippin apples, and even lima beans, which I despise? You show me someone who will eat llama beans without being at gunpoint, and I'll show you a pervert. <laughs> Billy was screaming. What the hell are you talking about? I'm also responsible for dogs and cats and guppies and cockroaches and the President of the United States and Jonas Salk and your mother and the entire chorus line at the Sands Hotel in Las Vegas, also their choreographer. Who do you think you are, God? Don't be sacrilegious. I'm too old to wash your mouth out with laundry soap. Of course I'm not God. I'm just an old man. But I'm responsible. Gaspar started to walk away toward the corner and the avenue and a resumption of their route. Billy stood where the old man's words had pinned him. Come on, young fellow, Gaspar said, walking back backward to speak to him. We'll miss the beginning of the movie. I hate that. <laughs> <laughs> that is such a good... That's just good writing, but like that's one of the things that it, we were talking about this um, for the past few weeks. We were, we talked about this with Omalos, and we talked about this with uh, uh, Robert Highland's All You Zombies. We talked about what it means to actually take responsibility in a lot of ways. Like in Omalos, taking responsibility is actually standing up and like walking out of the city that is based on the torturing of a child. Uh, in Highline, it's more like understand your trauma like and use it to like become better this is great because it's just like it is about taking responsibility it's like we we it hasn't been explained to billy yet the importance of the job that gaspar has but he takes it seriously and he actually like it sounds crazy but he sits and he thinks about it he's like i'm responsible for everything in this world even the shit that i hate even lima beans like i have i owe something to this world like and it's and I'm responsible. Like, I love that. Like, if more people had, if more people would actually look at themselves as being responsible, the world could change in a very, very interesting and beautiful way. Absolutely. Everything that he brings up, if you think about somebody taking the full feeling of responsibility for whatever that thing is, whether it be a president or mm. toxic waste dumping or even perverted lima bean eaters, <laughs> he, he's giving them all the same weight and mm. importance and he's he's really thought about this it's not he's not being cavalier and saying that he's responsible for those things he might be talking a little silly about you know how much he feels about the responsibility for all things but it's very clear he means what he says even if billy can't quite understand where it's coming from yeah well no and i also love that he threw in and your mother <laughs> <laughs> gotta love it your mother being dropped uh <laughs> <laughs> that killed me when I was reading it. I just died laughing. I'm responsible for this and the President of the United States and Joan Salk and your mother. And <laughs> oh, man, he's responsible for your mother and cupcakes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, it's and it's an amazing thing too because it's like you know he does literally feel like he's responsible. He saw someone litter, and he. Uh, confronted the person about it. I always admire when people do that in real life. Like, yeah. It, it always... It, an idea of civic responsibility and civic duty to not let terrible things happen in front of you without confronting it. Uh, I, it's a really admirable quality, and I agree with you that no matter how small people think they are, like Billy, 
their importance has ripples that they're not really even sure about. But yeah. If you take that attitude, if everyone takes that attitude, or even just enough people take that attitude, you could see some real change for all of those things he said he felt responsible for. Mm-hmm. The Hangout, like, a few times, this is another one of the, the moments that we get um, of them just chilling. Uh, they're hanging out at the apartment. Finally, Gaspar said, I've been thinking a lot about my dying. I like that. I like what Woody Allen said. Billy slid to a more comfortable position in the lounger. What was that? He said, I don't mind dying, I just don't want to be there when it happens. Billy snickered. I feel something like, I feel something like that, Billy. I'm not afraid to go, but I don't want to leave uh, Mina entirely. The times, I spend, uh, the times I spend with her, talking to her, well, it gives me the feeling we're still in touch. When I go, that's the end of uh, Mina. She'll be well and truly dead. We never had any children. Almost everyone who knew us is gone, no relatives, and we never did anything important enough that anyone would put in a record book. So that's the end of us. For me, I don't mind. But I wish there was someone who knew about Mina. She was a remarkable person. So Billy said, Tell me, I'll remember for you. Memories in no particular order. Some as strong as ropes that could pull the ocean ashore. Some that shimmered and swayed in the faintest breeze like spider webs. The entire person, all the little movements, that dimple that appeared when she was amused at something foolish he had said, their youth together, their love, the procession of their days towards middle age, the small cheers and the pain of dreams never realized, so much about him as he spoke of her, his voice soft and warm and filled with a longing so deep and true that he had to stop frequently because the words broke and would not come out until he had thought thought away some of the passion. He thought of her and was glad, He'd gathered her together, all her dowry of love and taking care of him, her clothes and the way she wore them, her favorite knickknacks, a few clever remarks, and he packed it all up and delivered it to a new repository. The very old man gave Minna to Billy Canetta for safekeeping. I really love that quote, and it's also wonderful that this quote is bookended later uh, as one of the last things Gaspar says of remembering mm-hmm. him to his wife. Yeah. Oh my god. I'm I'm a, I'm a little emotional just having read it right now, but like yeah, like and that's and this is a thing where it's like I feel like we're all frightened of dying, obviously. We're <laughs> all frightened of dying, and even worse, having it be as though we never even existed. Yeah, no, and that's like that's a pain like in me sometimes where it's like I, you know because like we we live in a society where you know history because you know you know you make movies about people or like you read history books like you know if you want your name to be remembered and live throughout all eternity you know like you have to do something you have to do something great in song and Mm -hmm. it has to be told in song and story yeah and unfortunately that's usually like worse and bullshit like you know a happily married couple who shared a, a, a somewhat unremarkable life as most lives are somewhat unremarkable and that they and i love that whole thing where it's like we never did anything that would put us in a record book but she's still important and he's like, and that's the thing that I'm afraid of is that, and I think that that's interesting because like most people, when they talk about dying, they'll, they'll be like, well, you know, if they believe in heaven, they'll be like, well, I'm going to be with the, the people I love. So it's okay. Uh, Gaspar is not that way. He's like, no, when I die, there will be no one here to remember her. And she deserves more than that. And that's, fuck. You gotta love that if you're going to take this story at face value, these might, the, the wife we never meet and these two men 
are possibly the three most important people in history. Yeah. And their lives to themselves seem so yeah. small and, and minuscule. Yeah. And even like even to us they would seem small and minuscule. Like it's an older homeless man, a Vietnam vet who is a, a night who is a night manager at a seven eleven, and like a woman who passed years ago, we don't know how. Like who also never really did anything crazy. Like but these are but yeah, these are the people. Like these are the people for like for whom these are people upon whom the safety of the world is based and and by telling the story of his wife and by billy telling the story of the man who saved him and and all three of their stories all three of these character stories being told the act of remembrance is also is almost more important than stopping that last hour Mm -hmm. from ever occurring it's given a lot more weight that the act of remembering of, of Billy continuing this tradition and remembering Gaspar and his wife. It's the most important events that happen in this story about saving the world. Yeah. No, it's like, I, I love it too, because that kind of reminds me of the, uh, I mean, this is going to sound, like, I, I, I know we're talking about Harlan Ellison, and I don't want to bring up a Star Trek that he didn't write, but uh, it's very much like uh, Q Continuum, to, or Q Business to me, where it's like, human, humanity is being tested. Well, how do you test humanity? You look at them when they don't want to be looked at, you know, you, you know, go like in this case, go into the apartment of the, the two people that you would never say more than two words to and realize why life's important. <laughs> what, what better way is there to judge all of humanity? Yeah. In some ways. Yeah. No, and it's, and I love that too. Where like, yeah, it's, it's the kindness that matters, you know, being like, and we'll, we'll get to this later. Like what exactly you need to become the paladin of the lost hour but the qualifications are not str- like it's not physical strength. It's not it's not even resolve, really. Like it's responsibility and it's memory and it's just generous love. <laughs> yeah, and it, it really speaks to the human condition, the idea of the people that you love and that loved you and the people you changed and that changed you are really the most important things that you can experience mm-hmm. and, and find significance from Gaspar and Billy have a long conversation about Minna. And, uh, after that, uh, Billy decides to open up and actually tell the story of the man who sacrificed his life to save him in Vietnam. And he got very emotional about it. Like, obviously Billy was heaving breath with impossible weight. His hands moved in the air before his face without pattern or goal. He kept looking into far corners of the dawnlit room, as if special facts might present themselves to fill out the reasons behind what he was saying. Ah, Jesus, he was floating on the water. Ah, Christ, he got in my boots. Then a wail of pain so loud it blotted out the sound of traffic beyond the apartment, and he began to moan, but not cry, and the moaning kept on. And Gaspar came from the sofa and held him, and said such words as, It's all right. But they might not have been these words or any words. That's so beautiful to me. Like, like that these two can find like this kind of understanding and support, and that you can find it in a stranger. But then also, like, there's this one. There, there's this thing where like he he tells the story and he just starts moaning. Like, there comes to a point where, in my opinion, trauma goes beyond. Like, I mean, obviously, trauma goes beyond words. Like, you know, one of my favorite lines from King Lear is about how there is no scream loud enough to, to like, show you what I'm feeling. And all that Billy can do is moan. And Gaspar holds him. 
And I love that where it's like, he says, he says it's going to be okay or it's all right. Or maybe words like that, or he didn't say anything. Or maybe he didn't say anything at all, but he was there. Which that's the thing that matters to me. It's like, you know, that was so beautiful to me where it's like, you know, it was sort of like an Omelas type deal where it's like, it could have been this, it could have been that. But in this scenario, it's the only thing that matters is like that he was there. The words didn't matter. What mattered was was love, <laughs> was it, support. It's true, and and you know, I don't think that Billy necessarily even, even though Gaspar's been building up his relationship with Billy this whole time to try and presumably get him to reveal some of these facts about himself, he's not pushing it. And when Billy recounts his war story, the section right before that quote. Um, he's not doing it for Gaspar, and and he's not even necessarily doing it for himself. It's it's happening to him as mm-hmm. he's saying this. He's reliving it. It's a really difficult passage to read, and to have it ended with Gaspar comforting him after that, it really sets the tone for their friendship. Yeah, man, I wish I had a Gaspar in my life. <laughs> yeah, we could all use a Gaspar in our lives. This is from their trip to... Um... Their last, their final trip to the graveyard. Gaspar knows that he's dying, so he takes Billy to the graveyard one last time. Then he actually comes clean with what exactly the watch is for, and you know why it's magic and what exactly it does. Gaspar drew a deep breath and tore his eyes away from the grave. His gaze locked with Billy's, and he told him, "The years, all the days and hours exist." As solid as a re- as solid and as real as mountains and oceans and men and women, and the boabab tree. Look, he said, at the lines in my face and deny that time is real. Consider these dead weeds that were once alive and try to believe it's all just a vapor or the mutual agreement of popes and Caesars and young men like you. The lost hour must never come, Billy, for in that hour it all ends. The light, the winds, the stars. The magnificent open place we call the universe, it all ends. And in its place, waiting, always waiting, is eternal darkness. New beginnings, no new beginnings, no world without end, just the infinite emptiness. And he opened his hand, which had been lying on his lap, and there in his palm rested the watch, making no sound at all, and stopped dead at eleven o'clock. Should it strike twelve billy, eternal night falls, from which there is no recall. There he sat, this very old man, just a perfectly normal old man, the most recent in the endless chain of keepers of the lost hour, descended uh, descended in possession from Caesar and Pope Gregory XIII, down through the centuries of men and women who served as caretakers of the excellent timepiece, and now he was dying, and now he wanted to cling to life as every man and woman clings to life, no matter how awful or painful or empty even if it's just for one more hour. The suicide falling the suicide falling from the bridge at the final instant tries to fly, tries to climb back up the sky. Powerful. Super powerful. It's super interesting to me because this is like this is a, a, a fantasy function. This is like, you know, this is, you know, time incarnate. This is the lost hour that must must never come. And we the paladins keep it. And I also love that it comes with, and it was like, and it's brilliant. Like, you know, he, he lays out in this very beautiful language, just how dire the circumstances and then says, and I'm dying. And even a dying man, even when it's horrible, like you want that one last hour, like 
you know, and then the whole thing about like this, the suicide that jumps tries to climb the sky, like, where it's like, I wonder about that. Cause like a lot of people who have attempted to commit suicide, there's that documentary, the bridge, like where it's like, and it's very rare that someone attempts to kill themselves, survives and then does it again. Yeah, and, and you know, it one, one of the more powerful parts about this as well is it ties back to uh, earlier in the book, there's a scene where they're watching a newsreel, and they're talking about nuclear war, about mm. the end of civilization, yeah. and Gaspar has just talked about how he worries about dying just like anyone else, mm. and Billy says, you're not the only one that worries about dying. And Gaspar is like, oh, don't worry, that's not happening. I'm here. That's right, and that's exactly the duty of the paladin. It's almost this idea that without, with a paladin on duty holding this last hour, we can go on forever as long as there's someone holding on to that. But they're never going to be perfect people whose job is to do this. They're just going to be like us. They're going to be folk, yeah. Who have a life and who are going to have moments when they wish to selfishly use that hour for themselves rather than their own death. And as noble as he is, even... Gaspar is able to acknowledge that aspect of himself. Yeah. No, and it's like, that's one of the things about it that's like actually super heartbreaking to me. Oh, another thing that I wanted to uh, to bring up about the passage that we just went through is we don't, we don't get the word waiting in the story very often. We get it in terms of Billy's apartment, and then we get it here. And what we get here is the thing that's waiting when the hour comes, the, th- the other thing that waits is darkness. A darkness from which there is no recall. So it's kind of this really weird thing where, like, I feel like the words sort of link those two uh, passages together, and what you have is like this overarching threat of what happens with the lost hour and this antagonistic darkness that is out there waiting, just like the waiting that Billy does in his apartment, trying not like trying to make sense of his own life and his own guilt. Like it's the same darkness that's waiting to come, and the paladin comes instead. Like. Right. It's if you boil it down, this is also a metaphor for man's own futile attempt to rage against death and never mm-hmm. give in up until the last hour. Mm-hmm. And the paladins are making sure that even if each of us does reach that last hour, that the earth, that time, continues to wait and doesn't hit that last hour. Exactly. When he said in reference to using the last hour, or like some of the time for the last hour for himself, they remained there that way, in silence, as the wind rose, and finally, in a timeless time, Billy nodded. Then, the young man said, You won't be losing Minna, Dad. Now you'll go to the place where she's been waiting for you, just as she's, just as she was when you first met her. There's a place where we find everything we've ever lost through the years. And then Gaspar says, That's good, Billy, that you tell me that. I'd like to believe it, too. But I'm a pragmatist. I believe in what exists, like rain and Minna's grave and the hours that pass that we can't see, but they are. I'm afraid, Billy. I'm afraid that this will be the last time I can speak to her. That's a thing that's, like, really interesting to me, that he's... I feel like it's just an amazing... It speaks volumes as to Gaspar's character, because this person also doesn't necessarily believe in heaven. No, quite the opposite, in fact. He's, he's like, I believe in the shit I can touch, and what I know is that Min is gone. What he like, knows is Min is gone, and what he knows is that... If, if someone isn't keeping this clock going, that there's also a gone at the end of that clock as well. Yeah. And because he knows that, why wouldn't he assume that in the same way, if that clock runs out, there's just darkness and emptiness at the end, that that's not what death is yeah. for him as well. Exactly. 
So, yeah, so the, the watch needs to be passed on. The paladin needs to choose a new paladin so the hour can continue being protected. So softly, Billy could barely hear him, knowing that he was denying himself what he wanted at most at this last place in his life. He whispered, if I die without passing it on, it will begin to tick. Not me, Billy said. Why did you pick me? I'm no one special. I'm not someone like you. I run an all-night service mark. There's nothing special about me the way there is about you. I'm not Ronald Coleman. I don't want to be responsible. I've never been responsible. Gaspar smiled gently. You've been responsible for me. Billy's rage vanished. He looked wounded. Look at us, Billy. Look at what color you are. And look at what color I am. You took me in as a friend. I think of you as worthy, Billy. Worthy. They remained there that way in silence as the wind rose. No, and I love that. I love that statement so much because it's like, you know, this is... it. I feel like it's the thing that gets in the way of most people trying to actually do something where it's like, I'm not important. Like, I'm. Why, how can I change? How can I save the world? You know, I'm just me. Like, I just manage an all night thing. Like, and get, but Gaspar is wiser than that. He's like, no, it's exactly the people like you who keep this world going. Like, yeah, it's, 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 it's not, you are worthy. It's not the normal science fiction narrative you get in a lot of um, binary where it's either good and good versus evil. Both of the main characters in our story don't believe themselves to be worthy. Mm-hmm. And yet both of them also hold a terrible responsibility on their shoulders for remembering or for, for keeping on something that they can't control. Yeah. And that's where the worthwhileness finally comes in. You know, if both of them recognize the worth in each other. Billy says, I could never be someone of worth like you. And he says, Billy, you took care of me. Mm-hmm. You're worthwhile to me. That's all that matters if yeah. you're saying that that I'm someone of worth. Well, no, and that's like, and that's such an amazing way to like, you know, because that's an like Billy doesn't want to believe that he's worthy, but then you know Gaspar's like, I'm a homeless old man and not even the same race as you, and you took me in anyways. You were responsible for me. You were responsible for the Paladin of the Lost Hour. What could be more worthwhile than that? Exactly. Like you know, it's the the just because a life seems worthless doesn't mean that it is. And I feel like that's an incredible statement. And it's one of the few things that I think science fiction can show us. Yeah, it's 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 definitely... We talked about this a little bit earlier before the podcast, but there's this idea of science fiction being able to bring ideas to life, both good and bad, that we don't ever either want to consider or can consider in real life. And in this particular instance, it's a really good illustration of that being achieved. Yeah. These sort of ineffable concepts and the idea of of people considering their own death and and their own importance and it, and it breaks it down into ways that we can understand and take meaning and hope from. Yeah, and it's like and there's there's certain things that like give me like a great deal of hope from this story. Like one of the things is uh, when it comes towards the end and uh, he like he's going to pass the watch on to Billy and he says, "But I, I want a favor. Like I want you to give me a minute with with Minna." And Billy immediately says no. And he doesn't know why, like, or like he knows why, but like he felt weird doing it just immediately so curtly. And then he says, like, I think that we both know that that wouldn't be right. And Gaspar says, that was the last test. I just had to know that you were the type of person who wouldn't, who knows what this hour means and how precious it is and that you won't let it go. And in, in, in return for that, I'm going to, I'm going to do something for you. Like, so he recalls the soldier who gave his life for him. 
But um, what I think is interesting is his justification for it. Gaspar says, I'm content, Billy. You needn't have worried. Minna and I don't need that minute. But if you're to carry on for me, I think you do need it. You're in pain, and that's no good for someone who carries this watch. You've got to heal, Billy. And I love that for a couple of reasons. First of all, for Gaspar's character, like, I could, like, yeah, I mean, of course I could want that, that minute with Minna. But we lived a life together. Like, I already, I don't need that. I'm content with the time that we spent together, and I'm not, I'm not going to waste a minute on that, even though I love and miss my wife very much. But I'll tell you what, if you're going to carry the enormous burden that is this hour, then I think you need to come to terms with your ghost. Like, you need this minute. Like, and he, he breaks his own rule. Like, the, the rule that Billy would not break to get the watch, he broke before he gave it up. Like, he's like, here, go talk to the guy. And the television show was really amazing, where he's just like, Dad, he didn't even know I was there. I said, thank you for saving my life. And he said back to me, I'm just happy, like, you know, he's like, if I'm going to die, I'm happy that I, my death meant something, that I did save someone, because he wouldn't have known. Like, And we don't, because of the way this story is told, we don't really need to know if this is time travel or if this is ghosts mm-hmm. or whatever it is. But, but in the end, both of these people, this dead man and this man who survived on after him, were able to give each other's lives meaning mm-hmm. and to give each other healing for this moment and for this for this deed. Yeah. And and he couldn't have continued on being the paladin without that. The, the yeah. wall had to be broken because if you're taking all of that responsibility of yourself on the world, you have to be able to do it with a clear yeah. conscience. And you also have to believe, like you also have to believe in responsibility, I think. And you have to know what in fact you are responsible for. And I think that in that moment where he's like, first of all, you need it because it's going to wreak havoc on your soul. Like just knowing that you were the only thing standing between us and darkness like that that's going to get at you. So you have to be right with yourself before you take this on, but also understanding responsibility. You're responsible for Lima Beans and the president and Jonas Salk and your mother. You're responsible for all of the people that this hour need to be kept from. That's what you're responsible for. You're not responsible for the man lying four feet to your left. You're not responsible for that man's death. Like, and I think that's interesting where it's like, it, it, I feel like in the end, it was about understanding what you're responsible for. Yes. And if you take the science fiction out, what this reminds me of is there's sort of an idea in therapy that you can do um, mental time travel where you can go, you know, because not a lot of us get the chance to go back to an event and get closure for something we feel guilty about. Mm-hmm. And in a metaphysical way, he was able to reach full closure on this issue. He... He literally has no burden on him anymore. He enriched this guy's life who saved him by telling him that his death had meaning in the same way that all these other people who are considering their life and death and what it means are are given an answer, an answer that they're able to find for themselves. Mm-hmm. And his eyes closed again after only a moment and his caretakership was at an end. As his hand opened and the most excellent timepiece now stopped again at one minute past eleven, floated from his palm and waited till Billy Knetta extended his hand, and then it floated down and lay there silently, making no sound, no sound at all, safe, protected. There in the place where all lost things returned, the young man sat on the cold ground, rocking the body of his friend, and he was in no hurry to leave. There was time. A blessing of the 18th Egyptian dynasty. God be between you 
and harm in all the empty places you walk. So good. Then it's I I love that end and it's um is it that especially that end like I love those little like historical things like which I don't know how historical this is but it's a beautiful sentiment. God be between you and harm in all the empty places you walk. Or it's like you know because we we talked a lot too about the insignificance of the perceived insignificance of individual lives. And if you actually do believe that, probably every place would be empty to you, like at least devoid of meaning, devoid of reason. But like this is, no, may God be between you and harm in all of the empty places that you walk. Like, was it also that fucking last bit where it's like he just sat there in the cemetery, cradling his friend? There was he wasn't gonna leave. There was time. It's and, hard to read it. It 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 makes my voice crack reading it just because I can imagine that moment going on for an eternity. Mm-hmm. You know, and both of them have reached full closure in a way, and and can move on to whatever the next state is. Yeah, no, it's. I'm just. I'm so happy for. Like, I'm, I'm. I'm simultaneously heartbroken and happy. Like, because it's just. I felt so good for these characters. Like the closure that they got, and I. I feel like. I just love them. <laughs> I love them too, and there's, it, it really makes you appreciate how in a lot of stories there's this real grim, dark uh, responsibility association with mm-hmm. having the weight of the world on your back or being the timekeeper for the world or being the lone guardian. There's this always this idea of solitude, of sadness, of burden, of missed mm-hmm. opportunities. And this gives us the flip side of that, which is a life fully lived in service of taking mm-hmm. the weight on the back of your world. Yeah. Well, no, and this is actually a thing that I kind of want to bring up. And I wonder about this, which I would I would love your opinion on this. So we have the lost hour, which is confined by this watch, and it is the hour in which the world ends. So it is an hour. It is a place of darkness. It's a place of just badness in general. However, there's this other idea of a a time or of an hour wherein everything is returned to you. And I wonder what their relation is to each other, or where the fuck that watch is. Right. <laughs> Exactly. You know, I you got to wonder if it's a synchronized watches type of situation where mm. the two paladins meet at the end of time and one unspools one clock and allows the other to unspool. That would be like, and that would actually be kind of an amazing thing. Like, and it would like, would it just like, would both watches like cancel each other out? <laughs> and even if there wasn't a second watch, it makes me wonder by the time we actually do hit that midnight, or if we if we don't. If you go far enough into the future, how many of those one-minute rule breakings are we gonna see? Yeah, you know that what happens like the, the, when Billy has to hand it over to the next guy or girl. He gives like, him a minute he, too. You know, it's like, or but like, what if like by the time he passes it on, it's like this says eleven thirty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it starts to get a little like, bit more pressing yeah, at that point. Billy's just like, look, I kind of ha- I hit a few jams. <laughs> In my life, I kind of needed to fix some shit. <laughs> yeah, it's all well and good for Gaspar that he was able to get through all of that thing without using those minutes, but I needed some of those minutes. It's also interesting to me because, like, not he didn't use this. Like, if if this is true, like if this is the lost hour, which we know, like, because when Gaspar explains it to us, like the you know the Pope cut out like eleven days from the calendar, so that's eleven days gone plus one hour that needed to be confined to this watch. 
There's a lot of possibilities as to what that hour and, and what that time can really mean, especially when yeah. we're told to explicitly take time as a real thing, like the grass dying underneath you and the weathering of age on your skin. No, and this is this is a story that's rather interesting to me because it's like it, it reads very well, but the thing that's very jarring to watch in the television show is um mo- like you know there's a bit of magicy stuff at the first you know a, a watch floating around on a fish line, very cheesy effects for the 80- it's 80s television though, so it's like that's what we had. Basically, we just have this wonderful television show where, like, just these two dudes share an apartment and get to know each other, and then randomly the watch floats, and it's like, oh, right, we're watching a Twilight Zone episode. <laughs> it, it also makes me think, like, yeah, this was a self-contained short story, and yeah, this was a one-and-done a one Twilight Zone vignette, but couldn't you also imagine this being, like, a Doctor Who-type pilot to its own oh, yeah. story, where it's like... Well, now we'll follow Billy, and eventually the person he ends up training to be his paladin, his successor. It it does seem to kind of want to burst the constraints of its format. Mm-hmm. Now it's and I feel like that might be sort of a trademark of Ellison's writing because it's like I feel like like it's good, but his writing is like it's it seems like even ambitious for its form. Like he does stuff with words that I'm just like fucking. This is awesome. He paints a real pretty picture. He certainly do, and sends me to dictionaries. Yeah, I know. I know. Sometimes I, I was reading this book, and I was like, Ellison, were you just holding a thesaurus next to you sometimes? And you're like, hmm, what would the paladin say? <laughs> I know that's probably not what really happened, but yeah. sometimes I felt like I needed a thesaurus on lock just right next to me. It might have been his nickname in high school. I'm just floating that. Mr. Thesaurus? <laughs> it's the most boring type of dinosaur. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. That sounds like a terrifying dinosaur. It probably knows grammar, too. It's probably it's a grammar. It's going to correct you. Oh, it's going to correct you. Uh, yeah, no, so this is a thing that I found super interesting about it, and I wonder about this because... All right, so I might be diving a little too deep on this, but, like, um, one of my, my undergraduate degree, I got, like, you know, partially because I read a bunch of Latin and know a shit ton about Romans. So I'm a little fascinated that, you know, and I am also grew up Catholic, so we have the... In- this watch comes from a very strange history. It starts off that he brings up Julius Caesar and the advent of the Julian calendar, which was big for Romans because that was when they stopped dealing with the moon to make the calendar and based it upon the motion of the sun, which is interesting because that's where like the that's where the month July comes from. Is named for Julius Caesar. August is named for Augustus Caesar. Uh, December should be the 10th month because decem is 10 in Latin, but they actually had to put months in to make shit work, so now the 10th month is the 12th. So it's about reordering time. And then Pope Gregory comes along and does it again with the Gregorian calendar. But I wonder about this because the lost hour contains darkness. Do you think that has to do with like lunar cycle stuff? Lunar cycle. Or, like, am I getting a little weird on this? No, not at all. I just, I had a completely different rabbit hole that I went down when I when I read all of that. And um, I sort of, I don't know if it's lunar cycles necessarily or if it's, I mean, can you go further into a little bit more of that while I kind of collect my thoughts on it? For sure. Uh, no, so it's, um, and this is a weird thing about uh, the Roman calendar before their innovation of... Um, the the Julian calendar, which apparently Julius Caesar actually came up with, where he's like, that's eh, fucking stupid. You you know, do you know why February has 28 days now? Uh, it's fixed now at 28 days. We fixed February. February used to be however the fuck long we needed it to be. 
Oh, wow. Which is like... The, 30, the 38th of February. It could be... I think it was like something as few as like 12 days and as many <laughs> as 38. Like... Wow. So, just whatever. <laughs> I'm, I'm reminded not so much of the lunar cycles, but of... Um, okay, so, different author, Philip K. Dick. Mm -hmm. There's this great book he did called The Exegesis, and it's a collection of a lot of his different journal entries based on real-life experiences where he may or may not have hallucinated mm -hmm. um, various events that talk about how all of life we're living right now is an illusion, and we're secretly living in the last days of the Roman Empire being mm. eternally yeah. cycled back to over and over again, because yeah. that is the real end of the world. And that's kind of what came up for me, was this idea that uh, these older cultures were using their control, both of man's perception of time and time itself to kind of... If you build a an, an end time and trap it and make it so that it never comes, you're basically ensuring that time will continue. Mm. That, that, those are some of the thoughts that kind of came up from what you said about that. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, actually, like, I really like that, um, that interpretation of it. I, I mean, you know, regardless of what they're saying, they're saying that, that time is real, that humans' perception of time mm. is real, and so obviously... It, it kind of calls to me the idea you were talking about about the second clock, the idea yeah. of what comes after that moment of eternal endness mm -hmm. and darkness. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, now if this is the out, like you know, if the the lost hour is literally that the hour in which everything is lost. What is this other hour where where everything's found? Yeah, where everything that's lost is returned to you. Like, and maybe that's just you know, maybe that's just a pretty thing that like Billy says like towards the end. But it, like, it could be. I feel like, I don't know why, I feel like it's structured in such a way that it, it almost has the same amount of weight as the Lost Hour. It does, and, and it's also kind of a metaphor for what we use time for in the first place. You know, the there's all these things we throw around, like a watch pot never boils, and, you know, a lot of other things like this about the constraints of human perception and how we perceive time, where when we're waiting for something to happen, it seems to take forever, but if we're distracted or... We're doing something else. Things seem to creep by and happen all at once. Mm -hmm. And I kind of interpreted that this as being the ultimate extent of human perception breaking down an improbable concept. Yeah. That obviously we know that there's some sort of beginning to things. We're living in an eternal middle of things. Obviously, we'd want to guard the end of it as well. And, mm. you know, the metaphor of the final hour or what goes on in the final hour is, is that. They're sort of... They're creating an end in order to make sure that it never happens. Yeah. So, um, no, and it's like, that's actually kind of brilliant, too. Like, I mean, in terms of a strategy to save the world, as it were, if you can somehow, if, if there is the last hour, if there is an objective end point to time, if you can isolate that end point and just carry it around with you, forever taking it out of circulation, yeah, you kind of cheated death. Like, right. you, you have new beginnings forever as long as there is someone to remember and live as long yeah. as there's a person to remember this duty then and there's people that you're willing to protect and defend from this fate then it that is what it's a metaphor for because once there's no people left to remember the timepiece or that this last hour is not to come we might as well be all gone anyway so uh would you do you want to do a related reading anything to suggest sure i mean we, we talked a little bit about ellison yeah. uh I'm not completely familiar with all of his work, but but some of his stuff for TV shows like 
you know, City on the Edge of Forever. Yeah, which, by the way, if you guys get a chance, you should check out, if you haven't seen it already, it's a classic Star Trek episode, The City on the Edge of Forever. Ellison wrote it, and it's really well written. It's super good. And it kind of writes the the rule book for Star Trek for time travel that ends up, you Mm -hmm. know, being used in every series and every episode after. It is. Is is it the first one where they time travel? I don't know if it's the first one, but it's definitely definitely the the first one that matters. (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely the one that has consequences. And, you know, it gets... The city... that uh, The the race and and the technology ends up being brought up a bunch of other times in in Star Trek and a lot of other things it influenced as well. Mm Mm-hmm. I would recommend that. Um, if you ever get the chance to read Ellison's short story, uh, I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream, or play the click-and-point adventure that he made of that, <laughs> I would recommend either of those as well. They're both very good, and they definitely tax the brain with a bunch of what-ifs mm-hmm. that are really fun to contemplate. Yeah. Anything else for you? I would actually give a soft recommend to um, the Tales from the Crypt movie Demon Knight. It's actually, like, it's really weird. It was supposed to kick off a franchise, and it did. That and Bordello of Blood I, I fucking loved. I thought they were great I movies. I love Bordello of Blood. Um, I, liked, I, liked the, uh, I liked Demon Knight for a few reasons. First of which is the acting. Uh, William Sadler, who's, like, been in everything and is amazing. He plays, like, your sort of rough and grizzled Demon Knight who has to slay demons and also keep the key to complete chaos out of the hands of the demons. So he has to haul up in this building with all these people. Jada Pinkett's there. Jada Pinkett Smith is one of the people, and she like ends up becoming sort of the next demon knight. So he like it's a very much a story about um, a cosmic responsibility in the hands of normal people. And I I thought it was a good movie. Like it's definitely more violent than this. Oh yeah, <laughs> I, I would recommend so, it too. Okay. If if you read this, you thought. But what if it were violent? Check out Demon Knight. <laughs> yeah, what if it were violent and you had a creepy, gross guy laughing and making terrible puns at you? Also. <laughs> I fucking love the name in that movie. Sick of this cowboy shit. <laughs> yeah, well, then now they're motherfuckers. All you have to do is give me the tea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. self-recommend on all of that, definitely. Um, exactly. If you're looking for more also along the lines of somebody who's uh, keeping track of lost time... I would recommend uh, Douglas Adams' Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, mm-hmm. which, um, in the same way that uh, this short story that Ellison wrote relates to the Twilight Zone episode, there's also a Doctor Who episode that this was based on and that ended up getting made that, that talks about a character named Professor Cronitis. And he's charged in the same way that the Time Lords are with keeping track of, of time in all of its units as a real thing that exists. So I would definitely say along those same lines, that's a good story to read. And that, that's interesting, the idea of having to keep track of time in a way. like Yeah, keep track of time in more than just clocks, which lock it down, mm-hmm. and calendars, which pinpoint it for us. Uh, no, that was actually kind of a thing that reminded me of this, and I will I'll probably cut this bit out, but it's a thing I thought was interesting. Was um, I thought of, when I was reading it, uh, two things. Um, first was Pan's Labyrinth, because uh, the, cur- or the general, or whatever his name, the colonel, He's got that watch that he breaks. That was his father's. He gets the watch working, and the whole thing is you break the watch when it's your time to die, and then you have it passed on. But, like, I love that in that movie, though, where it's like, you know, the guy was such a dick that he breaks the watch, and it's like, give this to my son. And they just refuse the watch, and you're like, we will never tell this this child (laughs) what you were. You're a fucking monster. They definitely subvert that idea. They're like, no, this will end with you. 
Which actually, interestingly, Pan's Labyrinth is the exact opposite of this story in a weird way. Thematically, it, yeah. it shares a lot of the same things, but it comes at it from an opposite point. It's still about love and stuff, but like, it's definitely not about. I think it's keeping it's, that hour. It's a. It's definitely about embracing the loss that time that, that time gives us, and yeah. a lot more of a way that's not necessarily something that you can control or that you can bring hope to. But, but there's still kernels of hope within it in the same way. Cool. So those, uh, was it the other one that actually reminded me of is, do you remember, uh, do you ever read Great Expectations? Uh, Miss Habersham? Like, yeah, no, I just immediately thought of this. This stop clock always reminds me of that book. But like, yeah, it's, she she's jilted on her wedding day and like is left in an, a house where she like throws everyone out. The All of the food from the wedding banquet is there and rotten. Uh, she's still wearing her wedding dress and every single clock has been stopped at the moment she got the news that her husband wasn't showing up. I mean, that's interesting. She's decided to live in that hour forever. She's permanently denying moving on from that time. Yeah, which also, that's another thing, that's a thing about this story that was actually really interesting is it's a subversion of those two other things that I brought up. Like, apparently whenever we bring up stopped clocks, it's usually Mrs. Habersham or some asshole, like, you know, trying to be toxically masculine. In this case, it was not that. <laughs> no, not at all. And, and and I think, in a way, the end of this story might as well be the clock hitting midnight for mm-hmm. for these characters. Because it doesn't matter what they do from this point on, their love of each other and their remembering was the most important part. Yeah. Oh, so, uh, anything else you want to talk about? No, I, I think that our... Uh, our minutes to midnight are about to expire, yeah. and I think, and I can feel the darkness slow, slowly creeping in. Leskin, I can't handle the responsibility. <laughs> you need to take this watch now. <laughs> and you and the audience need to listen to this and like and subscribe. Like and subscribe. Follow us on uh, Facebook and uh, check us out on Twitter. Uh, I've been Bryce Skidmore. And I have been David Leskin. And thank you very much for visiting us in the Mirror Zone. Uh, Be sure to check in on us next week when we will be bringing you uh, a wonderful tale about femicide. Uh, We're going to be talking about The Screwfly Solution uh, by Alice Selden. So, yeah, look us up. Uh, It's a great story, and I can't wait to talk about uh, Lady Murder with you. Yeah, have your repellent on standby. Indeed. Bye-bye. Ciao.